You are listening to the Ridgewood Church Podcast on the sermon series entitled, Light, Experiencing Christ in the Psalms. Well, Nicholas Herman was born in 17th century France. He was born into a very poor family. And as soon as he was able to join into the military and be a part of the army, that was his thing. As a young man, he liked having consistent meals, as most young men do. And so he also wanted to be able to have a little bit of money for himself. And so that was his career path that he chose. And he entered into the army, and he really loved it. And after a handful of years of being a part of the military, he suffered a very unfortunate injury that he would later point back and say the injury was the result of his own clumsiness. But he was injured and caused him to have to leave the military and leave the path that he wanted to be on. And feeling rejected and alone and through many downtimes and just true discouragement in his soul, he entered the Carmelite Monastery in Paris. And it was there that he picked up the name that maybe some of you in the room would know him as Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a humble man, and at this spot in his life, he was keenly aware of his lowly place in the world, and he entered into that monastery to take over the kitchen duties. And so that's what he was assigned as he was there. And while there, it was in that kitchen and in those mundane tasks that he encountered the Lord in a way that truly shook him. And an intimacy with God was born in his life as he worshiped the Lord in the midst of mundane things. He's become a well-known person for the simplicity of his intimacy with God. And in his day, very well-known religious leaders were coming to learn amazing and wonderful things from this man that was peeling their potatoes. The only recorded work of Brother Lawrence is a collection of things that he had written down uh, through the years of being in the monastery, as well as a few interviews that were gathered into a book that you might have heard of called The Practice of the Presence of God. And in one of those conversations, he describes an intense encounter he had with the Lord that so shook him and was so a part of the fuel and the foundation for his worship the rest of his life. And it was out of that that he found that his sins and the clumsiness and the things he so hated were dealt with. And that God had come and to give him satisfaction and that his sins could be put behind him and everything that he hated about himself could be reconciled. And it was worship that changed his life. And I don't know about you, but I've experienced times in my life where I know that the Lord has so delivered me from things, whether it's sin or difficult circumstances or the healing that he's uh, done in my life regarding anxiety and depression and those things that I carried for a lot of years, I look at those moments and go, Lord, I can't even believe that I was over here and this is where you've brought me. And it's in those occasions that I'm sure you've experienced as well that sincere thanksgiving is the right answer for what God has done in us. And so as we move into the scriptures today, I want to just invite you to hit the minus sign on the map of your life, if you will, to see a bigger picture of what God is doing. And as we go into this series that we're calling Light, Uh, Starting today and going through uh, December, experiencing Christ in the Psalms, we're going to look and see how thanksgiving produces a result and what God means to use that in uh, to bless us as his people. And so the big idea of today's message is that Christ would be rejected. In this series, we're going to be looking at different messianic places where the Psalms are forward-looking to who Christ is and all that he was for us. And today, we're going to look at how he was rejected. So I invite you to grab your Bibles, if you have them with you, and turn to Psalm 118. If you don't have a Bible with you, I invite you to grab the one in the seat back in front of you there. We'll be on page 511. 
And we'll look at how Christ was rejected, but I also want to ask you the question as we go through our time today, is where is your worship? Where does your worship rest? And that'll make more sense as we go along. And so this is what I believe a very practical application of this passage, and we'll see how in the life of the Israelites, God used this in their life, and we'll see it especially in the life of Christ as we key in primarily on verse 22 Uh, But we're also going to do a flyover of the whole passage because there's a lot for us here. So verse 22 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that's what we'll focus on today and who Christ is and what we see in this passage. It's a great place to journey as we're poised right before the valiant American holiday of Thanksgiving. There's a lot that speaks to Thanksgiving, but also we look forward to Jesus and the celebration of who he is for us. So to give you a little background on Psalm 119, I think it's important as we jump in to look at that. It's believed that this psalm is from King David, and he was the one referred to in Ezra 3, where the people sang out with great celebration as they were building the temple. So the worship of God was coming, and they were having a place for that. And so there was much anticipation and joy there. Let me just read these two verses out of Ezra 3 to you. It says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord... The priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively. It was a liturgical song, back and forth to one another, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And they said, right out of Psalm 118 here, as we see it, For he is good, his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted, with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. It was just a beautiful picture of them celebrating, having a place to worship in its grandeur, and it meant so much to them. And as we look at Psalm 118, it's a celebration of all that God has done. And so as we go through, there's a progression that I want us to be able to see today. David led off with Psalm uh, 118, verse 1 through 4, and guided us through that, that there's a call and a praise corporately to be together. And then it goes through and gets more personal, and we'll look at that as we go through here today. And then it ends, the last half of the chapter ends with what was in their day a very familiar corporate song, that they sang it often together. And it's the last of the Hallel Psalms that were sung in Egypt during Passover. And these were also sung at festivals, at Pentecost, and they were also sung in homes, celebrating what was the Passover for them there. It was believed to also have been sung uh, with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room in Matthew 26. So this psalm has some history to it, and it was, was very familiar for God's people in Israel. And that word Hallel is the beginning of the word hallelujah. So God be praised. This was something that they sang together very often with one another. And as we just pass over the first handful of verses here to see in verses 1 through 4, what's important is that we see God's love together, that there's a corporateness, and it's important for us to be seeing God's love together. And they came together and they rejoiced and sang this often. And sometimes I get concerned that we have so many things available to us as far as the internet. We can podcast any preacher we want to hear throughout the week. We can go chase down any worship song or hymn that we want to hear. And many times we make that so individualized. And we just build our menu of the Christian life for us. And we miss out on participating with God's people and coming together corporately in worship. And that was really important to them in this moment that they do that. And it's 
really good for us to see the Israelites enjoying time together, and they were responsively challenging each other, saying this back and forth to one another. They sang it all the time, that it was in their large gatherings, in their small gatherings, as family and friends, they were celebrating, and they were saying, do you see God's love? Do you see it? And do you feel it? And that we experience his love together. It's important that we put ourselves intentionally together with God's people. Do you do that on a regular basis for us to do that and see his love together? The next thing in verses 5 through 18 that's important for us to draw our attention to is that we're to relish his love for ourselves, to relish his love yourself, meaning that it does get personal. We come together, we are influenced by other Christians, and it takes us deeper, and we want to enter in more to appreciating what it is that God has done in us, that we relish that. So I just want to give you a few examples. If you have your Bible open there in 118, I'll just draw your attention to a few verses of what I mean by that. In verse 5, it says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me, and he set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Verse 8, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And I know many of us are coming off of a detox from all of the political ads that we experienced a whirlwind for a number of weeks. And how good is it to know that our refuge is to be placed in God and our trust is in him and not in some political official promising things to us. But our refuge is in God. Verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord has helped me. Maybe you can say that today. You've been pushed hard, and you felt like you're falling. The Lord has helped you. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I shall not die, in verse 17, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Many times as a parent, I find myself, we've got three girls, and they'll be saying, you know, how come we didn't get to do X, or why didn't we do Y this weekend? And I find myself trying to remind them of how amazing parents they have, what amazing parents they have, and saying, hey, remember this and this? Let's recount all the things that took place, and let's remember. And it's in those moments that I realize and hear the Lord saying, hey, Neil, why don't you remember some of the things that I've done in your life, and let's recount those things. It's a great reminder for us as we walk with others. And as we sit together this week, many family and friends gathering together, oftentimes at Thanksgiving, we go around and say the things that God has done in our life or say the things that we're thankful for. What a beautiful opportunity this week to just go, hey, I've already got them ready. I'm ready to recount the deeds of the Lord in my life. They're celebrating with great astonishment the kindness of God towards them. And that's what Brother Lawrence was so impacted by, that he didn't have to look at his own clumsiness and shame and the things that he hated about himself. And that's true for us as well. There's things that that each of us have that we just go, why is that there? Whether it's sin or a, a something about us that we just don't appreciate. And we can lay that before Jesus and that he takes that away from us. That we're astonished at the ways that God helps us. Do you enjoy his love personally? Or do you just go through the motions with those people around you in your life? Do you enjoy his love personally? Now anchoring to the the greatest portion of our passage here today to see the important picture of Christ as the rejected cornerstone. And he was the rejected cornerstone. And God means for us to understand a few things about this. And there is a piece of this that is twofold. 
And it begins with just the mindset behind the cornerstone itself. In their day, the cornerstone in building buildings was very significant. And so it was the first stone that was laid above the foundation. So foundation was poured, and then nothing else happened until the cornerstone was laid. And so it was, everything else was fitted to it. It was measured off of the cornerstone, and everything was placed based on where it was. The entire design of the building was wrapped up in where the cornerstone was placed. Everything else conformed to it. It wasn't like, hey, we got this whole thing built, and maybe we got a little room over here for this cornerstone. It wasn't the caboose at the end of the train for what they were building. Everything revolved around that and conformed to it. And so it is in our relationship with Christ as well. So what's twofold in being mentioned here is that David is first in view, and he was originally rejected as useless for the kingdom of Israel. And they didn't see him fit originally to be a leader, but God raised him up and made him a king, and he was able to deepen the worship of God. And it says that he ascended through the gates into the temple. Verse 23 points to this being something that God is doing. And then the second and far more important piece of the puzzle for us in the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself, that the future cornerstone, he is the one by which everything else is measured. The New Testament shows us that Christ is the cornerstone of the spiritual temple of our lives, that the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us as his followers, and Christ is the cornerstone of that spiritual temple. He's to be at the center of our lives. He's the head. He's the main corner of all. And he came as the anticipated Messiah, and they didn't recognize him. They didn't see him, and he was rejected, and he is still rejected by many today. There is prophetic and forward-looking implications here, and Jesus confirms that. And we're going to look to a couple places in the New Testament where Jesus makes that connection for us. If you have your Bibles still with you and want to turn to Matthew 21, you can do that. We'll be looking at the parable of the tenants. And then if you're an overachiever and want to hold another place while we go through Matthew here, it will be in Acts 4 in the beginning of that chapter as well. So in Matthew 21 here, the parable of the tenants, Jesus has entered into the temple. He's speaking with the chief priests and elders. He's sharing a couple parables with them. And this is the second one that he shares. And he says, in making the connection to the cornerstone here, he says, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit grew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned yet another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, Jesus is asking, uh, When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of the season and Jesus said to them have you never read the scriptures and here's our verse here the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in their eyes therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruits and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him 
So the rejection of Christ by the people of Israel brought about terrible things for them. It was awful for them. And as one study note says on verse 43 of this passage here in Matthew, the privileged role in caring for God's vineyard or his kingdom is now being taken away and given to people producing its fruit. The church will be a new people or a nation consisting of disciples, now both Jews and Gentiles, gathered out of many nations and brought together to make one nation and one people. Christ was rejected by those that ought to have anticipated him the most, and he was cast aside and useless, and he was rejected so that we didn't have to be. Later in Jesus' ascension, Peter and John are continuing the work, and they go before the council of religious leaders here in Acts 4, and Peter points to the cornerstone again, and so they just keep on rejecting Jesus, the one that is their hope There's a continual rejection. And so just to recap the first few verses, and then I'll read from 5 through 12. Peter and John were preaching. They had also come and healed a man as they were entering the temple who was not able to walk. And the Lord used them to restore his ability to move around. And the leaders, it says, were greatly annoyed by that. So they captured them. They put them in prison overnight. And then here we are in verse 5 on what takes place. It says, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and let all the people of Israel know also that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing well before you. And here it is in verse 11, the good stuff right here. He says, this Jesus is the stone that has been rejected by you. The builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so Peter is drawing the line with them and and saying again, you are the ones that rejected him. And so he's not winning any friends, but he is influencing people in this moment to say, this is the Jesus and you missed it. You rejected him. And it's in his name that we have brought about this healing. And it's in his name that we find and experience salvation. I've had the tremendous privilege of going to Israel, and I count it a great privilege to retrace the path and the timeline of Jesus' earthly life. And it's striking in all the different places that we went of how Christ was rejected along the way. So going to where he grew up and seeing that this young man was pushed aside as just the carpenter's son. He was unable to do miracles in his hometown because no one believed in him. He was pushed aside seeing the places where he would go and show incredible mercy to people and to give a word, a touch, a healing, to give deliverance where it was needed, to be a friend, to provide grace when judgment was expected. Then moving into Jerusalem and being able to retrace where he went on the triumphal entry into the city when he was adored and the people shouted out verse 26 of Psalm 118, our passage here today, and they shouted, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And just 
as King David went up through the gates to the altar, now the chief cornerstone would enter into the city and go before. And this time, it wasn't to make a sacrifice for a moment or for a season for redemption of sins. He was settling the score for all time, this chief cornerstone that sins would be paid for once and for all. Then our group, we got to go to the garden in Gethsemane. And we had a worship time there and prayed and considered how Christ was rejected and left alone by even his own disciples in the moment when he was praying and asking God to just give me the strength, Father, to endure under the challenge of what's ahead. He's asking then his disciples, his buddies, to be with him, and they couldn't even stay awake and be with him in the midst of his loneliness as he's beginning to take on the weight of the humanity's sin. That even capillaries, we understand, were bursting in his forehead from, he was sweating blood from the stress and the pain of bearing up under the weight of humanity's sin. He was left alone. His disciples wouldn't even stay awake with him. He was betrayed by one of his closest followers there. And then as a group, we got to go up to the high priest's house, and we looked down the path, which most of those stones are still original, where Christ would have been drug up from his, by his captors. He was beaten and ridiculed. He was scoffed at and spit on and hated by the religious leaders of the day. We got to go down into the dungeon cave where it's believed that he was held while these religious leaders were trying to figure out, okay, now what do we do with him now that we have him? And he was left in confinement and darkness. And then when he's brought out, one of his closest friends has now denied him three times. We got to go and visit where the crowd would, instead of choosing Christ, who had been with them and done so much good in their midst, they chose instead a murderer. And they swapped him out for that, which was the rule of the day. And his body was so beaten, Jesus was, that he could hardly stand wearing a crown of thorns that was smashed on his head. He was rejected in those moments. We got to walk along the Via Dolorosa and see all the the stops along the way of things that happened as people were seeing him. He's carrying his cross, and he was taking to be crucified in a very public way, fully rejected, on display. That was striking to me, and just to, to consider how public that was for many people walking by and so many people hating him. He was fully rejected, and he's our only hope. And I just want to ask you, do you know him, and do you love him? Because Jesus was rejected and gave his life for yours and his life for mine. Do you know him and do you worship him? His life for ours. I love 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He was rejected and did that for us so that we could have his righteousness and we could pick up his life. What an incredible thing. And he did that all for us while we were still sinners. Romans 5 says he died for us. And Israel rejected the Messiah. And they couldn't have imagined a Messiah that would come in humility and lay himself down in the ways that Christ did. They pushed him aside. They wanted someone to come and establish immediate rule and strength. And as we celebrate moving into the Christmas season of this beautiful baby that came to be born in a cave in Bethlehem, we celebrate also the chief cornerstone that came to take away our sins, the Lamb of God. He's still rejected by many today, and I would submit to you that the issue is not religious conformity or just better head knowledge, but the issue for us is worship. It's do we love him? Is he at the centerpiece? Is he the cornerstone of our life? And as one author says, 
discipleship and us growing in our relationship with God as we pursue him is way more a matter of hungering and thirsting than it is knowing and believing. Are you hungry for God? Because that's the only thing that's going to allow him to be at the centerpiece and the cornerstone of our life is if we're regularly cultivating a heart that loves him and that's hungering for him. As we move into Thanksgiving and many of you have a traditional centerpiece or you'll bring one in to put in the middle of the table and it draws our attention as we have this epic meal on Thursday, draws our attention in to the center of the table that that is the way that Christ is to be in our life, that our attention is regularly being drawn in to who he is. Is that true for you? There is a book called Reimagine Church written by Nick Harding and a couple other pastors have put this diagram together and it helps us very practically to understand that oftentimes the drift or us moving Christ away from center is way more subtle than we consider. That when we're drifting away from worship and having Jesus as the cornerstone, it's way more subtle than we understand. And so they came up with this diagram just to walk you through it here real quick. Uh, The identity triangle. Where are we finding our worth, satisfaction, and true identity? And so just briefly here, there's these three buckets that they have identified, and they're really good to help us assess where is our heart in all of this and keeping Christ at the center. So many times we chase after approval, and I would encourage you to think through which one is maybe most present for you in bringing your focus away from Christ. So approval is the temptation to find security in the approval of others rather than in the foundation of a relationship that we have with God as his dearly loved son or daughter. Another would be, we're very driven in our culture. The temptation uh, for ambition is to drive for success in just our own effort rather than to trust God for what he's done for us. And then lastly here, the appetite is the temptation to look for satisfaction or comfort in other things rather than in God. These are things that pull us away from keeping Christ at the center and for having a vibrant life of worship. And so with that, they offer four things that show us what Christ has done and who God is for us in the person of Jesus, and it's these four G's here. And so the first is God is gracious, that the antidote to these things is that I don't need to prove myself to people because God is gracious to me. He's gone before me. Next, that God is great. I don't need to be in control. And if Christ is going to be Lord of our life, we want him to have the control of our life. And God is great and deserves that place. Third is that God is glorious, that I don't need to be in fear of others. And that many of us carry around a fear of man or fear of different family members. Or what will they think if I do this? Or why, why would I pursue that if I'm just going to get ridicule? We need to walk in what God has called us to and not fear man in that, that God is glorious. And lastly, that God is good, that we don't need to look elsewhere. And Jesus has provided for us everything that we need, and we can find all that we need in our satisfaction in Christ and who he is for us. I just think that's helpful for us to put our minds around what it means to keep our hearts centered on worship. It comes down to which kingdom are you living for? And with that identity going to ambition, approval, and appetite, Many times it's the kingdom of self. We want to build our own kingdom, and so these things pull us away from Christ. Or are we going to allow God to motivate our hearts and to center ourselves on Christ so that we live for his kingdom and being reminded continually of how good he is? So we've seen there's great enjoyment as we worship together corporately that we need to also make that personal 
and then that Christ is to be at the center. And just as we close, I just I felt so compelled in studying this passage to see that there's a committedness to our thanksgiving forever, that we're to be committed to it forever. And what was amazing to see is that the Israelites routinely were saying Psalm 118 to one another because they were pledging to each other, I'm going to worship God, and he's the king, and he's the one that I'm after. He's my Lord and my Savior. And I just think that's an amazing thing for us to be committed. There's a sincerity, a devotion, and it means things for us, not just for a momentary experience in worship with Christ, but for generations that we establish ourselves in pledging to one another as committed followers. And so I just want to invite you to bow your heads, and let's just take a minute to consider what God might be saying to us. And as we close, I just want to read the last two verses of 118 here to you today with your heads bowed. It says, you are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So let's just sit quietly before the Lord for a minute, and then I'll lead us through a prayer time. But just consider what God might be saying to you. Perhaps it's recounting the deeds that he's done for you, the good things in your life. But let's sit quietly and listen. Thank you for joining us on the Ridgewood Church Podcast. For more faith-based resources or information about Ridgewood Church, visit us at myrwc.org.